Section 13 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 13. It was not long before he came to himself again, shivering with cold, for the perspiration had dried upon him where he lay. He got up and ran. The night was now fairly down, and the keen air stung his cheeks. But, with a sure instinct not to be denied, he took the direction of home. He traveled at an extraordinary pace, considering the thickness of the trees and the darkness. How he got out of the valley he does not remember, nor how he found his way over the intervening ridges that lay between him and the country he knew. At the back of his mind crashed and tumbled the loose fragments of all he had seen and heard, forming as yet no coherent pattern. For himself, indeed, the details were of small interest. He was a man under sentence of death. His determination, in spite of everything, remained unshaken. In a few short hours he would be gone. Yet, with the habit of the professional mind, he tried a little to sort out things. During that state of singular exultation, for instance, he understood vaguely that his deep longings had somehow translated themselves into act and scene, for these longings were life. His decision negatived them. Hence, they dramatized themselves pictorially with what vividness his imagination allowed. They were dramatized inventions, singularly elaborate, of the emotions that burned so fiercely within. All were projections of his consciousness maimed and incomplete, masquerading as persons before his inner vision. It began with the singular sensations of death by drowning he had experienced. From that moment the other forces at work in the problem had taken their cue and played their part more or less convincingly according to their strength. He thought and argued a great deal as he hurried homewards through the night, but all the time he knew that it was untrue. He had no real explanation at all. From the high ridges, cold and bleak under the stars, swept by the free wind of night, he ran almost the entire way. It was downhill. And during that violent descent of nearly an hour, the details of his going shaped themselves. Until then, he had formed no definite plans. Now he settled everything. He chose the very pool where the water coiled and bubbled as in a cauldron just where the little torrent made a turn above their house. He decided upon the very terms of the letter he would leave behind. He would put it on the kitchen table so that they should know where to find him. He urged his pace tremendously, for the idea that his brother would have left, that he would find him gone, haunted him. It grew, doubtless, out of that singular, detailed vision that had come upon him in his great weakness in the valley. He was terrified that he would not see his brother again, that he had already gone deliberately, after her. I must see Mark once more. I must get home before he leaves, flashed the strong thought continually in his mind, making him run like a deer down the winding trail. It was after ten o'clock when he reached the little clearing behind the chalet, panting with exhaustion, blinded with perspiration. There was no light visible. All the windows were dark, but presently he made out a figure moving to and fro below the balcony. It was not Mark. He saw that in a flash. It moved oddly. A sound of moaning reached him at the same time. 
and then he saw that it was the figure of the peasant woman who cooked for them, Marie Petavel. And the instant he saw who it was and heard her moaning, he knew what had happened. Mark had left a letter to explain, and gone. Gone after the girl. His heart sank into death. The woman came forward heavily through the darkness, the dew-drenched grass swishing audibly against her skirts. And the words he heard were precisely what he had expected to hear, though patois and excitement rendered them difficult. Your brother, oh, your poor brother, Monsieur le docteur, he has gone. And then he saw the piece of white paper glimmering in her hands as she stood quite close. He took it mechanically from her. It was the letter Mark had left behind to explain. But before Stephen had time to read it, a man with a lantern came out of the barn that stood behind the house. It was her husband. He came slowly towards them. We searched for you. Oh, we searched, he said in a thick voice. My son went as far as Boots, even, and hasn't come back yet. You've been long, too long away. He stopped short and glanced down at his wife telling her roughly to cease her stupid weeping. Stephen, shaking inwardly with an icy terror in his blood, began to feel that things were not precisely as he had anticipated. Something else was the matter. The expression in the face of the peasant as the lantern's glare fell upon it came to him suddenly with the shock of a revelation. You have told Monsieur all, the man whispered, stooping to his wife. She shook her head and her husband led the way without another word. The interval of a few seconds seemed endless to Stephen. He was trembling all over like a man with an ague. Behind them, the old woman floundered through the wet grass, moaning to herself, No one would have believed it could have happened, anything of that sort, the man mumbled. The lantern was unsteady in his hand. The next minute the barn, like some monstrous animal, rose against the stars and the huge wooden doors gaped wide before them. The peasant, uncovering his head, went first, and Stephen, following with stumbling footsteps, saw the shadows of the beams and posts shift across the boarded floor. Against the wall, whither the man led, was a small littered heap of hay, and upon this, covered by a white sheet, was stretched a human body. The peasant drew back the sheet gently with his heavy brown hand stooping close over it so that the lantern threw its light full upon the act. And Stephen, tumbling forward, scarcely knowing what he did without further warning or preparation, looked down upon the face of his brother Mark. The eyes stared fixedly into nothing. The features wore the distraught expression he had seen upon them a few hours before through the window pane of that upper chamber. We found him in that deep pool just where the stream makes the quick turn above the house, the peasant whispered. He left a bit of paper on the kitchen table to say where he would be. It was after dark when we got there. His watch had stopped, though, long before, he muttered on unintelligibly. Stephen looked up at the man, unable to utter a word, and the man replied to the unspoken question. At ten minutes past five, the watch had stopped, he said. That was when the water reached it. By the flicker of the lantern, then, sitting beside the still figure covered with the sheet, Stephen read the letter Mark had left for him. Stevie, old fellow, one of us, you know, has got to go. And it is better, I think, that it should not be you, 
I know all you have been through, for I have fought and suffered every step with you. I have been along the same path, loving her too much for you, and you too much for her. And I leave her to you, boy, because I am convinced she now loves you even as she first believed she loved me. But all that evening she cried incessantly for you. More I cannot explain to you now. She will do that. And she need never know more than that I have withdrawn in your favor. She need never know how. Perhaps one day, when there is no marriage or giving in marriage, we may all three be together and happy. I have often wondered, as you know, the remainder of the sentence was scratched out and illegible. And, if it be possible, old fellow, of course, I shall wait. Then came more words blackened out. I am now going, within a few minutes of writing this last word to you of blessing and forgiveness, for I know you will want that, although there is nothing, nothing to forgive. Going down into that lost valley her father told us about, the valley hidden among these mountains we love, the lost valley where even the unhappy dead find peace. There I shall wait for you both. Mark. Several weeks later, before he took the train eastwards, Stephen retraced his steps to the farmhouse where he had bought milk and asked for directions. Thence, for some distance, he followed the path he well remembered. At a point, however, the confusion of the woods grew strangely upon him. The mountains, true to the map, were not true to his recollections. The trail stopped, high, unknown ridges intervened, and no such deep and winding valley as he had traveled that afternoon for so many hours was anywhere to be found. The map, the peasants, the very configuration of the landscape even, denied its existence. End of section 13 End of the Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood